you are joining uh, the live stream, um, you might want to uh, jump into one of those chat lines. It might improve the, just sort of the relational experience of it all rather than uh, just watching. We'd like you to do that. And I love to get your comments too. That's, that's really fun to see after the fact what you're thinking, where you're at. It really does shape how we go forward as a church. And um, if you are in that rooted study that we've talked a little bit about this morning, um, uh, we're jumping into chapter 7, which is really about really the transformative nature of serving. Like we tend to think of serving as something that we're doing that would help someone else. But in God's economy, when we serve, in many ways, we're helping ourselves, not just helping them, but helping ourselves, right? We, we are changing we discover the miracle that it, it is better to give than to receive, that to gain life, the process is to, is to lose it. Uh, that's, that's chapter 7. And we're looking at um, an example of what it looks like to serve, what it looks like to be a, a good neighbor um, by checking in on this really <laughs> brilliant conversation uh, that Jesus has uh, with uh, really a religious lawyer, if you will, a legal expert in religion, and not just in knowledge, but in doing. Uh, the, the religious leaders of the time didn't just know it to the extent that they knew they could do it, they did it. And <laughs> this guy, I don't know if you think of it as fortune or misfortune, that he's in a conversation with Jesus. People tended to dive right into conversations with Jesus. Why? Because he was mild, he was humble, he was graceful, he was approachable. What people failed to realize was he was also God. And we discover where this man assumed, presumed, had the posture of, I'm good to go. Jesus was interested in that man actually becoming good. Let's look at it. Here's what happens. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus has been teaching uh, all over town. And not just all over town, all around town and all the surrounding villages. He's teaching a revelation about God that has been lost completely, almost completely, by those that have been following him. He's bringing some things to the table that have been either overlooked or forgotten in many ways not really truly known at their depth. And the core of it is this. Nobody is measuring up. Nobody. There was a whole segment of people in the, in, in the, in the world of God's people that assumed and presumed that they were measuring up. And Jesus is saying, Nobody is measuring up. And here was the revelation. Here was the good news. Anybody could measure up. If their heart was soft, if they had ears to hear and eyes to see, they could find their way. Here's what it says. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's, it's probably out of the crowd. Teacher, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What a great question. It, it, you, you could consider this the, the deepest question of life. What do I do 
to have a life of meaning, a life of purpose. How do I live a life apart from the guilt and the brokenness in my wake? How do I, how do I find peace in circumstances that only cause me anxiety? How do I go forward having made such a mess? How do I get out of this space of depression and loneliness? How do I find my way to a sense that my life matters? Teacher, how do I find eternal life? And boy, wouldn't it be great if that was the nature and the essence of the way this man asked the question, but it wasn't. This was a softball question. This is a question everybody within the sound of that question knew the answer to because they'd been taught the answer to this question since they were children. They learned the answer to this question while they were bouncing on their mama and their papa's knees. Everybody knew the, the answer to the question, how do I find eternal life? Why is this guy asking a question that everybody knows the answer to? Because it had become common knowledge that Jesus was doing something radical. Jesus was doing something courageous, something different. He was calling people to something far different than what they understood to be normal. He was challenging God's people. And this man wanted to show that Jesus was nothing new. His point was to make Jesus seem conventional. He wanted him to admit in open court that he was heading up to Jerusalem, not really to do anything new or dangerous or revolutionary. The lawyer wanted Jesus to confess publicly that although he might be unorthodox, intense for sure, but what he was teaching village to village was nothing new. The answer to the question is love God and love others. Every good Jew knew that's the answer to the question. Jesus doesn't fall into the trap of defending himself or proving anything. This is what this guy is doing. He's testing Jesus. He's saying, defend yourself. Prove yourself. Show me that you're something special, something unconventional, something revelatory. And he tries to pull him into this. This guy needed some serious help, and he's going to get it. <laughs> and Jesus does what he does. He flips the script and tests him. Because here's the deal. When we decide to follow Jesus, it's no longer about knowing the right answers. It's about being changed. Following God is always about being changed, being transformed. So when Jesus turns it back on him, what's being tested is his heart. If his heart is soft, yielding, humble, he'll change. 
If by Jesus pushing on him, he finds a hard heart, an unyielding heart, he will not change. If his heart is hard enough, it might just shatter into a million pieces. But Jesus is testing him. It's always been that way. There's an old rabbinic axiom that says, it's not enough not to break the Ten Commandments. Has anybody heard you shouldn't break the Ten Commandments? You shouldn't break the Ten Commandments. That's not enough. In God's economy, it's always been this way. You need to allow the Ten Commandments to break you. Ten Commandments actually aren't going to break. We come in contact with Jesus. We come in contact with God to discover whether or not we're going to allow him in the most redemptive and healthy ways to break us. And that's the test. Jesus says, you tell me what's written in the law. How do you read it? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Should be the end of the story. What a great teaching. It should be over right there. He asked the question. Jesus turns it back to him, says, you tell me. He gives him the right answer. Good. Now go. Do it. Why isn't this the end of the story? Because, as we've said, this teacher's posture and not necessarily arrogantly, that he is on solid ground. He is approved of by God. There is no need for change. I am a good man. But what does Jesus say to him? You've answered correctly. Why don't you give it a try? Why don't you give it a try? He's casting aspersions in a sense. He's taking this from a rhetorical question to an actual one. Jesus has been since the very beginning when that man opened his mouth to answer the deep question in that man's heart, how do I find eternal life? And Jesus knows it's not a right answer. It's about the real answer and the deep answer. How? Can this man find eternal life? This admonition to go and do likewise doesn't put him in a good light. It suggests that he isn't on solid ground. And he makes the most basic of lawyering questions. Any good lawyer will tell you he should have just gotten out of that line of questioning right there altogether because he's lost control of the conversation. Lawyers don't ask questions they don't know the answers to, and he asks another question that he doesn't know the answer to. He says, well, who is my neighbor? Why is he asking that? Why does he say, well, who's my neighbor when Jesus says, go love your neighbor? Because in his mind, he also thinks he knows the answer to that. And that Jesus is going to say the same thing back to him. What do the scriptures say? To which he would say, your neighbor is not just your family. It's not just the person in the next house over. It's the stranger. It's the foreigner. It's the widow. It's the orphan. It's the poor in your midst. And then the lawyer could honestly say back to Jesus, well, then we're good because I show compassion on all those types of people. He would be, as the scriptures say, he's trying to be justified. 
He wants God to validate him that he's good. He started by wanting to make Jesus irrelevant. And now he wants this man to affirm him. Because he knows he's about to get pinned. But he could also say, if that's the response from Jesus, that I'm good and we don't need you. We already know all this, Jesus. I'm in good shape. I'm in good shape. And you're of no real consequence. And we think, oh, what a, what a sad, sad man. But we tend to all settle in here. We've, we tend to settle into a commonplace religious or moral or social respectability. We teach our kids, this is what's good and right. This is what's wrong and not good. Live in here. And if we live in there, we're good. We have our lines. We have a line where we think we know where it's too much. And we stay on this side. We do. We have things like loving God and loving others boil down to I serve at church and I'm nice to other people. Or cute little phrases like God's first and others are second and I'm third. And there's no I in team. Right? Everybody has this figured out. Miss America, if they still do that, has this figured out. Super Bowl champions have this figured out. They, they both go... Thank, I'm thanking God for how blessed I am, and I love everybody. Those are the right answers. How often do we look to Jesus and look to Scripture? No, not so much to find out how we're still lacking, but how to feel affirmed in what we are doing. How often do we go to our knees asking God to break our heart in redemptive ways? To show us again where we are in error. It is not our natural tendency. We're just like this guy. Jesus twists the plot again. He's not going to validate this guy. Because he loves him. He loves him. He loves you. He loves me. He's not going to affirm to you that where you are is okay. He's not going to let us stand in our ignorance and in our pride, threatened by eternal danger. The question that we have is, how do I find eternal life? And Jesus is not going to say to this man or us, don't worry about it. You're fine. Instead, he launches into a parable. And he doesn't answer the question, who is your neighbor? He answers the question, who is a good neighbor? Continuing in Luke chapter 10, a man was walking 
from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And the, and the question is in, in their minds, who is going to be a good neighbor to this hurting man? A priest goes by, passes on the other side. A Levite goes by, passes him on the other side. For some reason, we don't know why, Jesus is laying out the parable that those who know the law of God better than anybody, the answers to these questions, they don't stop. There are some kind of limit to the extent of their compassion. We don't know what they're thinking. All we know is that they know the answers and they didn't do it. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. He saw him. He took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine on them. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, which is probably enough for several weeks and food, and gave them to the innkeeper. The innkeeper, look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So let's take a look a little bit closely, rather quickly, what a, what a good neighbor looks like. Remembering all along that everybody listening to the parable is convulsing right now. I don't even know if they're going to be able to hear the rest of the parable. Because you understand what Jesus did. The people that should have been the heroes passed right on by. And the most despicable man Jesus could possibly think of. Stops to help. You would have to imagine someone that has cheated on your best friend, taken money from you, fires rifle shots over your house. I don't know. All the things that cause you the most justifiable, righteous anger. Those people. I don't know who they are in your life. That's who Jesus is saying is going to be a good neighbor. Three things we see here. He lets nothing excuse avoiding a need that he's come across. We tend to do that. We tend to make excuses. Some of them are ingrained patterns in our life. Some of them are subconscious patterns. Some are entirely reasonable, it would seem. We, we don't understand how our small contribution could possibly move the needle of poverty or hunger so we, we don't get involved. Why would we stop and help somebody on the side of the road when we know they have a cell phone? What if the situation of helping a person could be physically dangerous or it's in a bad part of town? Oh, well, what if the skills that are necessary after you stop put you in an awkward situation not being able to help? You don't have that particular skill. Or maybe we're a bit judgmental. They've kind of gotten what they deserve. That's why they're there. And it would actually be unhelpful to stop and helpful because we would be enabling that kind of behavior. Or my reputation might suffer. If I stop and help that person, whom we all agree in my tribe is a bad person, I'm going to be kicked out of my tribe. I'm going to be canceled. He allows none of that. He bandages his wounds. 
he risked disease. He poured oil and wine. He used his own resources. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He impacted his own ability to get to where he was going to get to later by tiring out his donkey. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. He altered his own agenda. This guy had some cash. This guy had some purpose. He was going somewhere. And now he's going to be pretty late. None of this stopped him from helping. No excuse or presumed limits dissuade this guy from the need. Nor should we. If we want to be a Jesus-following neighbor, a real Christian, if you will, when we serve an all-powerful God of protection and provision, this is the God we serve. This is the God we sing about. This is the God we praise. This is the God we feed back to what we know about him, that he's all-powerful, that he will provide, and he will get us through. If we don't stop and help people, that lack of action is an act of unfaithfulness. It says, I don't believe that you are going to provide for me where I suffer loss or there is a threat. To not help is to be unfaithful. The Samaritan wasn't out looking for people to help. He didn't quit his job and abandon, or abandon his family in order to make the road to Jericho safe for other travelers. That wasn't easy. He wasn't out to do that. It wasn't a big thing. He saw someone in need. He went out of his way into the ditch to ease his suffering. And then he went on his way. This isn't a story about a superhero. It's just a story about doing what you can. No more, no less. Jesus is saying everyone can and should be like the Samaritan. Secondly, he sees beyond the immediate need. This man's future is troubling. <laughs> he, he's going to be indebted to the innkeeper, possibly enslaved, until he pays his debt. The Samaritan doesn't just meet the immediate need. He considers the deeper, even longer-term issues here. Jesus is defining a good neighbor as someone who sees the bigger picture, the greater threats, the ongoing consequences related to the original injury or need. He's not out searching for needs, but the needs that he comes across, he takes on fully. Jesus is saying, don't just care about the need, care about the person. Don't just care about the need so that you feel good about taking care of needs. Care about that whole person. And then third, maybe the most difficult for us, he accepts the win-lose of the deep help. This man wins, he mostly loses. And he accepts that. We are accustomed in our culture, particularly, maybe even driven by ROI, return on investment. What's in it for me? Let's find a win-win. If that's your mentality, you'll never help as much as you could. And if your resources are limited, you'll never get started. With God, there's no need for a scarcity mentality. Jesus says time and again in different ways, empty your cup. I'm filling you up, not so that you can be a pool or a cup full of liquid. I'm filling you up to be a conduit. Pour it out because I will continue to fill you up. 
empty your cup. God always resources his agendas. Letting love cost you something, accepting the win-lose, sets you up to receive something you cannot get on your own from God. One of our friends, Pastor Norman Brown, down in, uh, uh, downtown with J. Jira Ministries, lives this out. They, live, they don't have any money. <laughs> so every time they see a need, they have to count on God to provide that some way from somewhere else. But they don't wait until it's there. They move into every need and say, we're going to help you. And I'm being metaphorical here. They say, how? And they go, we don't know. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know. But whatever we have, we'll give you and we'll try to find others to help you. No excuses. Whole person compassion. Expect a cost. That's what we learn. Okay, so let's get back to this unknowingly fortunate man that's become the subject of Jesus' intense kindness. <laughs> the sort of kindness intended to lead to repentance. Kindness in search of a soft heart. He says to the man, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law says, the one who had mercy on him. Couldn't even bring himself to give the simple answer, which is what? The smere. The smere. He can't even say it. He actually feels filthy with that word in his mind. And he, so he just says, well, the one who showed mercy on him. And this is where it started. Remember where we started? Who are the neighbors I need to be concerned about? That's his question. Who are the neighbors I need to be concerned about? But Jesus isn't teaching who is your neighbor. What kind of neighbor are you? And how far does your neighboring go? How far does the command of God go? Does it have limits? Not just with Jesus. The Old Testament law of loving God and loving neighbors was a radical concept, all-embracing. They didn't get that. There is no one you can write off as other or outsider or outcast. We have to shatter that illusion that keeps us from seeing that we belong to each other. Friar Greg Boyd says, there is no us and them, only us. Jesus ends the story by saying, go and do likewise. He doesn't say go and do exactly the same thing. He doesn't say go and do this once in a while. To many of us, being a good Samaritan means volunteering, doing random acts of kindness, helping strangers in an emergency. This is not why Jesus is telling this story. Remember, it's framed up by how do I find eternal life? Rather, Jesus is teaching his followers to apply the Samaritan's courage, his compassion, his generosity, his boundary-breaking solidarity in everyday life. What would the world be like if we thought the state of our soul, uh, we, we determined by our constant emulation of the Samaritan? Can you imagine? Jesus is issuing a radical challenge to his followers. There are no non-neighbors. None. 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 Amen? Amen. That's what she's doing. He, I don't know. Have you ever limited your compassion? Have, has your giving ever been uh, limited? Has your time ever been limited in the face of need within your power, within your reach? Why? Why? Why would we limit? 
We have a heart problem. This is where we started. Jesus wants to change this man's heart. He thinks he's good. Jesus says, you need to change. We need to posture ourselves to be changed by Jesus. That is what is good. A posture of change me, God. Not to be affirmed by Jesus that we are good. And Jesus is way ahead of us here. Oh man, this is so great. He's twisted this story right at the beginning. You and I wouldn't notice, but they did. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Somebody tell me where you're from. What city are you from? You're not from here. Jack, where, what, what's your address? What's your city? Columbus. Columbus. Uh, Laura, what's the name of your uh, neighborhood? Ballantry. Ballantry. Right? Imagine this. Jack, Laura. Someone is going down from Ballantrace, from Columbus, to Vista Community Church. Who is it in your mind now? It's you. <laughs> it's you. A man was going from Dublin to Vista Community Church on Sunday morning. A woman was on her way from Hilliard to Vista Community Church on Sunday morning. If you're in the crowd, it's you. Everybody in this crowd had walked from Jerusalem to Jericho. They might have been doing it right then. They immediately found out they're in the ditch. They're not the priest, they're not the Levite or the Good Samaritan. They're in the ditch. And Jesus says, which of these do you think was the neighbor of the man who fell in the hands of the robber? And he says, the one who had mercy on him. In his mind, he's thinking the one who had mercy on me. Jesus says, we shouldn't be surprised. Nailing it right here. Remember the man's original intent. You, Jesus, are irrelevant. I'm okay. Jesus has gently but powerfully shown this man that he is not okay. He's in a ditch. He has a limited view of the reach of God and he is failing at loving. He's also saying, you're in the ditch Unable to gain the kind of heart God requires of you. You can't do anything to get out of that ditch on your own. You need someone to come along and save you. This is what we do. This is what he's been doing. Instead of allowing God to change us, change our heart, we change the game so that our heart seems okay. Does that make sense? My heart's only this good. So let's build a system where that heart is amazing. And God hip checks us into the ditch and says, you need a lot of heart help. And that guy knows something is wrong. You and I know something is wrong. The man's got to be thinking, help me. How often do we find ourselves doing the right things? Everything we thought it meant to love God and love others, but life is dull. Your soul is dulled. Your, your critical relationships are unfulfilling. You feel adrift. You've got secret ways of finding temporary fulfillment. 
We think we're loving God and loving others, yet we don't have peace. We don't have compassion. So what do we do? More of the same? No. Recognize we're in a ditch. And we need something from the good Samaritan, who is who in this case? It's God. It's Jesus is the good Samaritan. And we're all in the ditch. Without a heart level overhaul, accomplished through the grace of God, in Jesus, we'll never have the right heart. This man is in great need. You and I are in great need. I am in great need. And where this man had originally tended to show that Jesus added nothing new, we see that, in fact, he offers what can only be gained through him. The moral of Jesus' story is not to imitate the Samaritan because you're already a good person. The moral is that only when we have had the experience of being rescued by grace can we really become like the Samaritan. Only when we have had the experience, and I would say the ongoing experience of being rescued by grace, can we really become like the Samaritan and like Christ himself in showing mercy and compassion. Mercy is who God is and what he wants. Only after being neighbored, if you will, by Jesus, healed, freed, forgiven, will he ever Will we ever be able to go and do likewise? What must I do? To find true life. What must I do to become truly good in my heart? What must I do to go and do likewise? First, receive what it is you hope to give. Turn to Jesus for grace and mercy and allow him to be changing your heart and stay there every day. Then, reciprocate the costly compassion you have received without limits. God, we come before you as humbly as we can. <laughs> Some of us have a hard time that, but God, we, we, we bow our head, we close our eyes, we recognize to the degree that we can that we are in a, in a ditch that we can't get out of apart from you, And we gratefully receive your offer of healing and forgiveness and eternal life. And we rise up out of that ditch and we commit to walking the rest of this pathway of life arm in arm with you, receiving 
every day, deeper change, deeper forgiveness, deeper mercy, or at least the experience of it. We're grateful for the eternal life we have in you. Secure, uninterruptible certainty. In the meantime, we need our heart overhauled so that we can be who you've called us to be. God, our prayer is that you would soften our hearts, change us, so we can go and do likewise. Amen. Hey, thank you all for being here. Thanks for tuning in. Go out there, love, receive the mercy of Jesus, dive into Rooted. See you next week for Conversations in the Round.